Let me read you our uh, text this morning. And though this, some of this may be really familiar, I think there's a part in this text that is familiar, even if you're like, man, you don't come to church or you don't read the Bible. But I hope to bring some clarity and maybe some freshness to this today. Mark chapter 12, 18 through 34 says this. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Fascinating, because they get a chance at one-on-one with Jesus, and this is what they come up with. <laughs> Jesus replied... Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law then came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second one is this, even though you didn't ask. The second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is the most important is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we have sung about how you are a good father. And that you have been faithful all of our life. Even when we don't see it, you're faithful. So I thank you for that. I see that in my life. But I only see it when I stop and look back and go, oh, oh yeah. In the moments of our lives, we can get hurried and distracted. And there's no doubt in my mind, God, there are many who have come in today distracted, other things on their heads and hearts. Maybe they're not even sure why they're here today. 
but I believe that you have something for them today. Jesus, thank you for being you. It's fascinating. And we love you. In your name. Amen. I believed a lot of things growing up uh, that could be viewed as a bit limited. Uh, some of it was probably because of my limited exposure to other cultures, to how where I lived. A lot of it was my own experiences, maybe from my family, the things that we did. This could probably be true of all of us, right? Some of it was because of what was intentionally or unintentionally reinforced. And so the things that I experienced growing up became the grounding of how I saw things, at least for a season in my life. For example, I believe that all families went on vacation, but vacation meant you went camping and camping alone. What was a norm for me was sitting in the back of a large station whacking, looking at the cars behind me, me getting a little car sick so my dad would roll down the window so the exhaust would come in and you could just go from there. That's what vacation was. Then I met my wife, Lisa. Well, I met her before she was my wife because that would be weird to meet her as my wife. So we were newly married and we were thinking about going on vacation. So, of course, I'm thinking what? Camping, because that's what you do. My wife did not grow up in a family that went camping. She's like, you want to do what? I'm like, it's fantastic. You go away, pretend you don't have a home for a week, and then you come back into your home. She said, that sounds horrifying. Her family origin, like, they worked and, and uh, focused on business and things and just to make a way and make a living. And so they did some trips, but no. She goes, vacations, Dale, are you go to a hotel, at least a motel, but not one of those ones we drive up right to the door because bad things, I've seen TV way too much. Let's just say in our married life, we've stayed in way more hotels than tents. In fact, I think the only tent was me and Anna in the backyard because it was safe. So who was right? What is the right way of doing a vacation? We do this for so many things. We have definitions of how things are to be based on so many things. These could be personal preferences, preferences of how things were in our past or our life, or at least how we saw them. And these are the lies of the enemy that keep stories going in our heads. We see this in our text today. People who could not agree theologically or politically continue to unite to bring Jesus down. It's amazing what unites people. Because they saw that this change that Jesus was bringing, at least the clarity around what it meant to love God that Jesus was bringing, and they saw this as wrong, or at least offensive, at minimum disrespectful for all the time and years of education and their service to the cause. But this shows how devious the enemy really is, right? There's this phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. In this story, it's kind of like if we have a common enemy, let's just go after them. Their conclusions or their groundings were, let's be in conflict with Jesus together. It's not that they just were resistant to change, they just didn't like the words of change. 
They demanded respect, so they fought. So in our story today, the big hitters come in. I'm going to explain who they were a little bit because I think them, though their theological, um, what they believed, I guess what I want to say, may not continue today. I think the attitudes do. This is the only time this group appears in the book of Mark. They're called the Sadducees. They weren't a very large Jewish party. They weren't a very, uh, as far as numbers, they were aristocratic. They were wealthy. They included most of the priests. They were, the Sadducees became the priests because they're like, if I'm going to be something, I'm going to be in charge. The office of the high priest was regularly held by a Sadducee. So being wealthy and aristocratic, they weren't really that interested in collaborating. They were more interested in dictating, just telling people this is how it is. And in order to do that, they just surrounded themselves with themselves. Let me find other people who also agree with me because it's just way easier. And actually, we don't have to change. They differed from this other group that we call the Pharisees in two distinct ways. It's actually kind of fascinating. First, they accepted only the written books of Moses. So they only believed the first five books of the Bible. And at this point, they didn't believe any oral tradition. This means they didn't believe any of the prophets. They didn't believe the Psalms, the Proverbs, anything else written. They're like, fluff, fluff, fluff. We just believe this. Secondly, they did not believe in immortality, eternal life for spirits or angels. Because they said in the first five books of the Bible, there was no evidence of this. So they just didn't accept it. They simply saw what they wanted to see. And they built up this earthly kingdom for themselves that they could control and keep other people down. So, Sadducees, at least how Mark writes it, is the last group to come in and like, Jesus, all right, enough of this, all this other talk. A test question designed to make the actual in belief in resurrection look ridiculous. They weren't just trying to confuse Jesus. They wanted to make him a fool. What was their grounding? Where did they come from? Their grounding was, we are right and you are wrong. The Jewish law had this institution called leveret marriage. Uh, the book of Ruth is a beautiful story of how leveret marriage comes to be and how Ruth was looking for a place to be redeemed. Its regulations are laid down in Deuteronomy 25. And then I think it's just important to understand as you read Scripture, this is what they're talking about. So here's the law. If a group of brothers live together, and that's a point that the Sadducees entirely left out. So if a group of brothers all live together, um, if one of them died and left no descendant, it was the duty of the next brother to take his brother's widow, his wife, and to raise up, the, the, raise up maybe a child, a family. And theoretically, this would go on and on and on as long as brothers were remaining. And so long as a child wasn't born. If a child was born, the next brother was like, whatever you want to say, off the hook. Because... A child was born, and now the heritage will continue. The purpose of this from God was to protect the widow. 
And the theology that was created was to trick the widow. What Jesus heard in this was the widow. And what the Sadducees were saying, what's the law say? To ensure that the family name would be continued and the property remained in the family. So the question of the Sadducees was simply this. In accordance with the regulations governing Leverett marriage, one woman has been married and in turn married seven brothers. And if there is a resurrection from the dead, whose wife is she? When that resurrection comes, they were just convinced it's going to be so confusing, Jesus. They're not going to know who they're married to. Heaven is a mess, so therefore it must not be true. They thought by asking that question, they rendered the idea of resurrection completely ridiculous. Their grounding was human kingdom, not God's kingdom. You know, we still ask questions like this today. They show up, uh, statements show up in the form of a question, right? We say this a lot. But the content of the question is, far, is surely a statement. They're often based on a conclusion of a story we're telling themselves. For example, back to the beginning. I went camping as a kid, and it was fun. If I met somebody who says, ooh, I don't like camping. I don't, this is not what Lisa said, so don't, you know, I can't throw her under the bus. But if someone goes, oh, I don't like camping... And I could instantly go from my grounding, camping is the best. And they go, I don't like it. I could be like, why do you think you're better than me? Because in my grounding, this is what we do. And we do that today. This is where I'm coming from. This is my assumptions of you. How I hear things, how I read things, the email I just got, the text I just received, makes me feel like you are wrong. You see, the Sadducees did a very dangerous thing. They limited their scope of God and tradition and comfort, and they built a dogmatic stance out of a few phrases in Scripture that was really there for a different purpose and a different reason, and specifically where other parts of Scripture were filled with the opposite. But Jesus, being Jesus, does something so brilliant here. He doesn't argue with them about their question. He simply goes, let me find common ground with you. Let me go to the books of Moses that you you elevate, and I will ask you this question. In the account of the burning bush, how how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. The key here is he's saying that even though they are dead, he continues to be their God dead in a human sense, but alive with him. There is a future and eternity where God continues to be with us, invites us with him. It's called eternal life. So Jesus doesn't take this stance of arguing with their question, but simply saying, let me take what you already believe, your grounding, and let me show you something different. And out of this there comes one final question by an individual from one more person. And we know this is the final one according to Mark because he says that from then on no one dared ask him any more questions. This question seems so pure. One that we all may ask. One that you may have come to your mind last week when we talked about give to God what is God's. You may have asked yourself this week, so what does God really want? I know in my life there's many times, God, I'll do whatever you want. 
Now that sounds like super spiritual and open, but usually because something bad was happening in my life. <laughs> or I was afraid for something. God, give me, I'll do whatever you want if you just take care of this. The question and challenge is really the spiritual fight within all of us, is it not? From the first temptation recorded in Scripture, where the enemy says, hey, did, what, did God really say that? Or maybe on your drive in this morning, you're a reminder of maybe you failed or you had a moral break. Something happened in your life where the enemy's now saying to you, you blew it again. So Jesus' response to this man who says, what does God really want? Though these words are familiar, I am imploring you, encouraging you to open your heart and to truly hear what it is that God desires for you. The enemy says the answer is complex and confusing. You're not smart enough to figure it out. Jesus says it's just this. It's kind of like you want to just go to like a, a master teacher or a master parent, if there is such a thing, and say, give me the clue, give me the key to life. In one phrase, though, in one word, it's like I get asked as a coach of football, what is the key to football? I go, well, it's all about blocking and tackling. In relationships, we say, well, you know, at the end of the day, you should just treat others as you want to be treated. In parenting, we say, just do it because I said so. I once read this book that had a title that says, Just One Thing You Need to Know About Leadership, but it was 350 pages long. <laughs> so Jesus, of the 613 commandments in the Bible, or of the Jewish people, can you just water it down to one? Are you with me? Some of you may have been coming, and you might be a believer for so long, but you've added to the list. Some of you may not be a believer. Here's an opportunity to hear. To the question, what does God really want? Jesus responds like this. The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second one is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. How did Jesus answer? Jesus starts, begins with his grounding, the grounding, the Shema, the daily prayer. He, if you notice, he doesn't answer instantly, here's the command, but he goes, let me tell you why. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He doesn't start with a command. He simply starts with the source. One, this word in Hebrew means wholeness, togetherness. Because our God is whole, because he is around all things and he is all things, it's not a number, it's a reality. Because that is true, this is what he asks of you. Because you see, love is at the very center of God. And what Jesus says is simply respond to who God already is. This is not, 
here's how you keep God happy. This is not how do you keep God's anger at bay. Then he summarizes everything based basically on who God is. So here it is. Respond by being like him back to him. If he is a good father, because he cares for you, this may sound weird. How do you care for God? You're like, wait, he doesn't need my care, but he longs for your affection. He longs for your intimacy. He longs for your openness. Respond by being like him, back to him, and then take that to others. That's what it is. You're like, what is the deal with Christianity? What is the deal with following Jesus? What is this whole religion? I don't really like organized religion. I'm like, awesome, because I'm pretty disorganized. But besides that, respond by being like him, back to him. And take that to somebody else. So loving God with all your heart, this is your affection and your will with your soul. This is your emotional identity, the integrated part. Your mind, the things you know, your strength with your body, all that you are. And even though that he just asked for one, Jesus being Jesus is like, let me give you two. Not for a heavy burden, but just so you will live in a certain way. I want to take just a few minutes to talk about some things about this. If you're a follower of Jesus as you sit here today, you're saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. You probably love these verses. You like to say things, we like to say things like Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Right? And it is, and it's true, and we also like to say that because we love God. And some of you just love love. Like you just love love. I love it. I love being loved. I love singing songs about love. I love love songs. I like Hallmark. You love the idea that the Bible tells you to love people, and whether you do it or not, at least you can tell other people this is what Christianity is about. When you get in debates about religion, you're like, oh, we're just about love, and I love it. Some of you are like, why is he being so weird? Because some of you are weird. Just kidding. (laughs) If you would say you're not a follower of Jesus here today, you're just here, which is great. Thanks for being here. You too probably still love the idea of love your neighbor. Like, yeah, I get that. Like, that, I'm, I'm about that. But you may wonder about how well the followers of Jesus are actually doing that one. You see the news, reports of actions of Christians. Some of it's really, really bad. But I would say to you, in an overly simplistic analogy that probably will fall apart, I would say this to you. If you go see a movie and it's just a really bad movie, that doesn't mean all movies are bad. It's important to see God for who God is, not just the behaviors of people. For me personally, being in the public so often as I am with the different things I'm a part of, I don't get into arguments and defend the actions of other people. I just try to reveal who Jesus is. That's what I would say to you. For all of us, because these words of Jesus have had also had 2,000 years of cultural interpretation <laughs> and experience and deviation attached to them, we have concluded all sorts of things about what love is. And sometimes we try to fight, like the phrase, love is love. 
I'm not telling people that they don't love each other or they don't, like, like even if I would say that's not a godly love, love is, yeah, the, that love and commitment is love. But that doesn't trump everything else that God is saying. Over the past 2,000 years, for sure, we have separated this thing into three different parts. We say, well, this is who God is. And we separated that from how do we love him. And we separated that from how do we love other people. Because some people are just like, no, the most important thing is just the feelings of love. And then other people say, you can't trust what you feel. It's all about the actions. This kind of approach we take so often... But it's kind of like if I, it was my anniversary and I gave a card to Lisa and say, the proof of my love is that I haven't cheated on you this year. Happy anniversary. What kind of card is that? That's sometimes how we approach. Like, of course I love because I always do the right, I don't do the wrong things. That's not love. So what matters to Jesus? Because I would say love looks a lot like Jesus. At the final Passover, Jesus says this, A new command I give you to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. When I look at what he did and try to hear what it said, it seems like this, that love is affection and action intertwined together. One thing just to say, yeah, we should be about love. And it's another thing just to act. But it's these things intertwined together. In other words, love for God is affection towards God and action towards his will. 1 Corinthians 13, we see this. If I speak with the tongues of men, of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, meaning this. You can will to love God and still miss God. You can desire in your heart to do that, and you can still miss him. Because what Jesus taught and modeled was that our love for God was measured by the degree to which we love others. In fact, he was so clear about it, it would be unthinkable for his followers to think otherwise. And yet they did, and so do we. So for me, here's our issue. We can say we love God and act nothing like Jesus at all. It breaks my heart. Because I say I love God a lot. And this isn't a heavy burden or shame or the things we do to fight right now. Because how the Sadducees show up in today's modern world is something is said and they're like, eesh. That makes me feel funny. I think I'll just get those around me who believe the same things I believe. But there's times when we need to be open. The issues we might face is, hmm, this is how I want to be like Jesus. I want to love others by saying, you just be you. And we think this one is really showing grace and love. And it's tricky because grace is so amazing, right? But you won't end up looking like Jesus. You'll end up looking like culture. And the second thing we often do is we live in a way that love is according to just how I define love. And if love is just 
according to how you experience love, then your love is grounded in whatever is true to you, whatever is true to my intuition, meaning what, if it just feels right, it has to be right. And this could either be a really loose feeling or it could be a very closed feeling. But Jesus says this, loving God, now this, if you're listening, you might go, huh? Loving God looks like the law. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? Jesus doesn't say, commands. Nah, there's no commands. Commands are heavy. Just live. But he says, no, let me clarify what the commands are. This is who God is. And thinking about the law, the psalmist David writes these incredibly interesting phrases. He writes, my soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set my heart on your laws. I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. Man, I don't hear anybody walking around going, man, I just love laws. I just love being told what to do. Man, I just can't wait. I wake up in the morning, someone tell me what to do. We don't naturally feel that way because we see laws and God's laws as something to restrain us from what we want. But I really think it's this. Laws and love work together. Laws can actually hold love together. Let me explain what I mean. We make vows and covenants in this life, do we not? And we make vows and covenants, and we may call them commitments and promises, to put a framework around our commitment and love for somebody else. We do it when we get married. We do it in friendship. Let me clarify what it means to be a friend. Let's put some guidelines. Let's put some things, some framework around this. And it's within that framework that we now understand the commitments that we make to each other. The truth is we have structured our lives around this, but yet what comes from God, we're like, do you really know what you're talking about? This is not just outward but inward, and it's not just inward, but it's outward. Thomas Merton says this, Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That's not our business. And in fact, it's nobody's business. What we're asked to do is to love, and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. If you haven't asked this question, I'll ask it for you. Why is God commanding us to love him? Doesn't it sound a little needy? I mean, if someone came up to me and said, I just need you to love me. Right? It sounds a little creepy. Right? Someone's like, you know, hey, as a friend, I just, I just need you to, I just need you to love me. You're like, oh, I, okay. Well, I'm going to block your number. Right? We do all sorts of things. Right? I mean, if God's like, I command you to love, that just sounds weird. Here's what it is. We become what we love. And what we love is what we become. It's just true. So God looks at his creation, at his people, and it says, if you don't love like me, you will never become like me. And God's desire, as we are his image bearers, 
He's like, I created you in my image. I'm the creator and giver of life. I just want you to see life like I do and be like me. Jesus says, give to God what is God's. And what basically Jesus is doing as we close here is just simply reordering our loves. What do you love? And what do you really love? And to that, we look in the eyes of Jesus, if you can picture him today. If you were to ask Jesus, what is it that you want? He's like, I just want to reorder the things in your life, not to hurt you, but to help you. I want you to see me for who I really am. Because at the end of all these verbal challenges of the group that said, Jesus, who do you think you are? The opposite political parties, who do you agree with? And these elites that try to expose him comes just this one person. And Jesus says to him, what? You are so close. You are so close. Just take a step towards me, and you're with me. For some of you, for so long, you have been in, well, you would say, no, I'm a Christian, and I, Frank, I, I'm not going to debate that with you. But I think Jesus might be looking at you saying, you're so close, just take a step towards me now. Let's do this with me. And some of you don't know Jesus. Some of you know a lot of things and know how to be a good person. And Jesus is like, you're right around the kingdom of God. Man, at the end of life, I never want to hear Jesus look at me and go, you are so close. But I want to hear, you are so close and you took a step for me. Come home. Come with me. It just comes down to that, the posture of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, the intentions of our questions, and really the laying down of our rights for this beautifully intertwined laws of love of God over and over each and every day. And the compounding interest of that will grow immeasurably more than what we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Will you let it work within you? Will you simply say, Jesus, I take a step towards you? Let's just sit quietly and just listen to what the Spirit has to say to you this morning. Sometimes we hear familiar things from God's word and the enemy's like, you already know what this one's about. Just think about something else. But Jesus is saying, I want to just reorder the things in your life because I care for you. I love you. The law or the command I give you to love me is for you. I would say if you are a husband or a father in this room today, I can't imagine anything better for your wife and your children except for you to love God. Because everything else pours out of that. 
you're a, a wife or a mother, there's nothing better than for your husband and for your children for you to first love God and take a step towards him. If you're single, you're employed, you're who you are for those that you, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're in business. Your greatest thing in life is not for you to be great at what you do, but it's who you love and what you love. Because out of that pours out all sorts of things. So in this space, if you've never asked Jesus, or never, here's the truth, you've never accepted the things that Jesus is saying to you, that he loves you, that he died for you and rose again for you. Just take a step towards him and say, Jesus, I want you in my life. And maybe many of you have been in the church or with him for so long. But let's just be honest, you've drifted into the other things that you love. Are you willing just to go, today? I want to recenter on that. God, help us. Jesus, thanks for your words. May you be honored and glorified today. In your name, amen.